Welcome everybody on YouTube this morning for uh, our Bible Institute. And just so you know, we um, have finished up now basically all of the technical stuff in the Bible. Uh, I have given you within good parameters uh, all the basic structural stuff that you need. And now we're going to move into um, the the more deeper things in the about the Bible, and that will be uh, some of the books themselves. Obviously, we're not going to do all of the books of the Bible. Um, they're online, and many, many people have, are going through that. But um, I, I definitely I want to include in our institute the, uh, the three key books in the New Testament. And uh, we have come through a lot of things and is I feel personally that I've given you a great understanding and application of how it all goes together and uh, just so you know if you want to that will be a while in these three books but our next phase would be uh, they do a complete study on church history um, and so that's what I'm thinking. If you guys just want to stop after the, these last three books, that's okay. Uh, but I would open that up to, to people in the church. I'm sure would want to uh, go through that. Uh, but it'll be a very in-depth study. It, that'll probably take us two years in itself. Um, I, will, I will go through every aspect of it, and you'll have a good handle on it. One good thing, um, you know, it will it will present on the website and to the people in our church uh, everything they could ever want if they wanted to go online and do the Bible Institute. I don't foresee me doing Bible Institute again for quite a while. Uh, we will switch, obviously, back over to people ministry and we'll finish out the New Testament on that. But about the time that all comes to an end, we'll be probably right there ready to start church history, which we'll do every other week. And, um, you know, it'll be a, it'll be a, a very in-depth time for you. Uh, it's the study that I did for myself. I have, I have about six or seven different versions of church history teaching. Some I did in churches when I would go in on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and, and put it together for them. Uh, I have a more relevant version that, um, you know, is more in-depth. But then I have the one that I did for myself that runs about, for me, nine volumes, I think, of, of material. And uh, it's probably the most in-depth study I've ever done in anything. And uh, so that's the one I'll probably use for that. So, But I want to begin today and talk about the three key books in the New Testament. And, uh, you know, it will be obviously Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. Uh, all the heresy that you're going to find today within the body of Christ, uh, or even outside the body of Christ, will uh, come out of one of these three books. These three books are the most three misunderstood books anywhere in the Bible. Um, of the three, probably Hebrews is the greatest one that they really get whacked out on. And... Uh, you know, it's a thing where we're going to start with the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at that first, and then we're going to work our way back. Uh, I felt like that Hebrews would be um, the best place to start based on where we are at in Proverbs uh, with the generation, and we've talked about that in chapter 30. 
and, uh, and, and to help you kind of put that uh, all in place for you. You know, when you look at the book of Hebrews, uh, every book in the New Testament, every book in the Bible really, uh, has a, a date that it was written. Obviously, you know, those dates are subjective. They, they, they maybe fall within a, a man's ministry, so you know the parameter of it. But you don't always know exactly when. when it, Paul's is a little different because we can trace him and we know where he's at when he writes, and that's pretty well historically founded. So that's okay. We can do with that. Now, when it comes to the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of questions on, um, on, on not only when it was written, but who wrote it. And you're going to find when you get into the neo-evangelical world and in and, and, and the Baptist world too, certainly in the theological world, you're going to find that um, this is a book that they really like to tear apart. And um, if you look in your Bible, you'll uh, find that it's, it says at the top, the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Hebrews. So your King James translators recognize that Paul was the author. And uh, there's a lot of debate today that who really authored it. Everybody agrees that Paul wrote the last chapter. And if you read the last chapter of Hebrews, and then you read the last chapter of every other book that Paul wrote, uh, there's no question about it. But the chapters up to that last chapter are totally, totally, and this is where they come from. It's totally un-Paul-like. Uh, they don't line up to anything that he wrote in the in his to the churches, and so because of that, they take the position that, and, and I don't know how to get to this, that Paul didn't write it, but he wrote the last chapter. That you know, that's it's kind of stupid, but that's you know, that's where they're at with it. A, a more plausible, and here again, I'm telling you right now, I talked to Dr. Ruckman about this. Well. 30-some years ago, and we, we, were, we were driving somewhere together, and I had picked him up at the hotel, and, uh, you know, and I asked him where he thought it, it dated, and I already had my own ideas, and he, he you know, he, he, he gave me a little more insight into it, but he validated basically where I was at with it, and uh, probably, and here again, this is no way you can prove this, but looking at the facts that you have, and trying to put something together that follows the flow of things in your Bible, probably Hebrews most likely was the first book that was written in the New Testament. We know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John cover those periods before that, but they're not written until 80, 90, 85 AD, long after Paul's dead. So you don't want to get confused on that. Probably the book of Hebrews is probably the very first book that is written. And it's probably most probably written by the Apostle Paul. And uh, that would put it um, somewhere around, you know, 35 AD. Probably most likely when Paul is missing for those 11, 12 years and uh, where he's on Mount Sinai or Arabia for that period of time, three years, anyhow, we know for sure, but he's missing for, in the chronology, he's missing about eight or nine, 10, maybe even 11 years. And, uh, you know, and uh, he's getting all the info from, from God uh, on Mount Sinai where Moses got it. And he's now getting all the information about the church uh, that he's going to, he's going to uh, 
you know, he's going to open up to the world the concept of grace in the New Testament church. And uh, most likely when he, now remember, Paul was very, very, very steeped in Jewish Old Testament. Uh, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. He he really, really, really had a a probably a greater depth of the Old Testament and God dealing with the Jew than than most people of his day. He was taught by the best, as the Book of Acts tells us so. And uh, and I think that what he probably did was once he comes down from that, based on what he already knew, he wrote a book entitled it to the Hebrews. That in that book, when we look at it here, what he does, and this is the weight that falls on me, that this is probably what he does. Because what he does in the book that everybody misses, chapter by chapter, or sometimes segments of chapters, he goes through and he compares everything from the Old Testament and shows you how that everything in the New Testament is now better. Who would be a better to do that than the Apostle Paul? He's steeped in the Old Testament. He knows it religiously. But he just got the revelation from God about the Gentiles in the church. So it would stand plausible that the first book that he would write, because from the last chapter he wrote it, that he would first thing he would do is write a book of comparison based on what he had known and based on what God gave him because he goes through every aspect of the Old Testament way they did things and the New Testament way that they're now going to do things and the key word for the book of, book of uh, um, the key word is the word better. And uh, you find it over and over and over again through, uh, through the whole thing. And so I would say that... Uh, there's a key verse that's a kind of a strange verse in, in um, Acts chapter 9, verse 15. And God himself said this about Paul. And I found this one night years ago, and I thought to myself, boy, that doesn't add weight to the evidence uh, that he wrote it and why he wrote it. Um, this is one of the little things that are tucked away. And, you know, Paul got saved. He's blind. He stumbles into a guy's house and the Lord comes to the guy and he says, he says that he tells him that Paul was a chosen vessel to him and he's going to reveal Christ or bear Christ in three ways. And in Acts 9.15, here's the three ways that he does it. He says to the Gentiles, to the kings, and to the children of Israel. Now, we know the Gentiles is an easy one because he is the apostle to the Gentiles and he writes the seven churches and there they have it. The kings is easy because from Acts chapter 20, uh, uh, 21 on to the end of the book, he, he does that. He goes to Rome, he's before Festus, Felix, even Caesar. He does all of that, King Agrippa. So that's where that takes care of. The only thing that is missing is where he does it to the children of Israel. Now I know that he goes into synagogues and things like that, but there's no definitive place where he actually gives them something on a large scale. Uh, 
And based on Acts 9.15, that he's going to bear his name to the Gentiles, to the kings, and into the children of Israel, most likely that is the book of Hebrews where he did that. And uh, <clears throat> the reason why these three books are so critical is because all three of these books are transitional books. And what I'm about to show you, nobody's got it today. I mean, it's just, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm anything because I got it. I'm just dumb enough to believe it. <clears throat> but it's all lost today. And it is how that your New Testament is framed around these three books. And when you see that, then you see why they are the key three books to the understanding of the New Testament. But they're also three key books that are very dangerous that you want to be careful that you don't, you know, you don't just throw caution to the wind and, and jump into it and try to apply everything into it to your Christian life. And I've told you many, many times. Everything in the Bible is written for you to learn one thing or the other, but not everything in the Bible is written directly to you, and that would be Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. When we study Matthew here after a while, uh, we'll see that Matthew is a transitional book that brings us from the Old Testament up to the New Testament. That's what it fundamentally does. We start out by seeing the beginning, everything laid out, God coming to Israel, their rejection in 1213, and, you know, and then it, it basically transitions us from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And you know, of course, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that the New Testament does not come into effect till the death of the testator. That's Christ dying on the cross. Then you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that all deal with that first time. Each one of them deal with Christ in a different way. Matthew is the only transitional book because he's presented as the king. And we see it. We see Israel transitioning from rejection of the king. So Matthew is your key book. The next book, when we end Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, now, biblically speaking, we are now in the New Testament. The problem is nobody knew that because Romans chapter 16 says that the church age was a mystery that God kept to himself and, and, and revealed in his own time. So technically speaking, at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John after the resurrection, the New Testament is definitely in effect, but God hasn't revealed it that yet. And so the next book you have is a crucial book is the book of Acts. And where the book of Matthew transitions you from the Old Testament to the New Testament, <clears throat> now the book of Acts will transition you from the Jew to the Gentile. And if you don't get that, you won't ever figure the books out. Because it's a thing where that is so ultimately clear. You know, in the first seven chapters of Acts, you know, you have him dealing with the Jew, and then they make their final rejection, and then immediately it transitions right to the church and to the Gentiles. It's just a, it, it's so easy to see. And of course, during the book of Acts, this is where Paul writes all the other books um, that are in the New Testament that are written to the church, the seven churches that he writes. It's all during the book of Acts. By Acts chapter 28, he has written everything that he's ever going to write. And so it shows you that where Matthew transitions you from the Old Testament to the New Testament, 
Acts will transition you from the Jew into the church. And during that part of Paul's life, which picks up in Acts chapter 12 to Acts chapter 20, he visits three missionary journeys and he, he, he deals with all the churches, starts the churches, and he writes everything to the churches from Acts chapter 12 to Acts chapter 20. So you'll want to remember that. And then the first book that you have after Acts, obviously the book of Romans. And where the church is established in Acts, the church doctrine is established in Romans. And then it just goes from there. And uh, you'll notice that everything that he writes to the churches, he writes to the church at, to the church at, to the church at. He doesn't do that with Romans. He just says, to all that be in Rome. He doesn't write that specific to any church in Rome. And there's a couple of reasons for that, and we'll get into that when we get into the book of Acts. So then we have Paul writes all that he writes, and then after Paul's writings, then we have the book of Hebrews, our third transitional book. And where Matthew transitions you from the Old Testament to the New Testament, Acts transitions you from the Jew to the church, Gentile, and the book of Hebrews, you start to transition from the church age into the tribulation. Now you can see how important those three books are because your whole New Testament opens up and revolves around those three books. One brings you to the New Testament, one brings you to the Gentiles, the other one brings you from the Gentiles out to, um, you know, back into the tribulation. And that's why you have the book of Hebrews, then you have the book of James, you remember James is written to the 12 tribes, uh, then you'll have First and Second Peter, Peter is the apostle to the Jews, so uh, you're going to see that his writings, he's given the keys to the kingdom in Matthew chapter 16. So you're going to see that his writings have a very Jewish slant to them, tribulation. And then you have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, doctrinally, are all, uh, uh, are all kind of double applications. Um, you'll find 1st John is basically for the church in the last days. And then 2nd and 3rd John are clearly to the nation of Israel winds up dealing with the Antichrist, and then you have the book of Jude, which is definitely pre-tribulation, and then you obviously have the book of Revelation, which is the capstone. So when you think of your New Testament, to keep it into a context, you'll want to think three books, Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. Matthew will bring you up to the New Testament. Acts will bring you up to the church. And then Hebrews will take you from the church back into the tribulation period and ends at the second coming of Christ in Revelation chapter 19 and 20. So that's how you want to remember your New Testament. And we'll make a lot of references to that uh, as we go through all of these books. Now, book of Hebrews is, without a doubt, one of the most mistaught books in all the Bible. And the first glaring thing that everybody teaches this uh, I hardly know anybody today, certainly everybody in the neo-evangelical movement, and I would say that almost without exception, most Baptist pastors teach this, and they teach it because that's what they were taught. They went to school someplace, and the scholars, the professors taught them that, and they just bought it. Never did they see that Bible colleges and theological seminaries were never of God and designed of God, they're designed of man, and when man designs it, you're going to have its flaws. So they don't see that. So they're taught because they don't know what to do with the book. 
They argue about, obviously, when it was written. They argue about who wrote it. And because it's so out of touch, they don't know what to do with it. They, they, they say that the Hebrews here uh, are what they would call Hebrew Christians or Jewish Christians. And of course, this is the fatal flaw of where you step outside the realm of the Bible that you never return. And yet you see that today. I mean, I don't know how many times you've watched television and see the ads or you'll, you'll just see them wherever about, you know, uh, Jews who are now Christians. And they want to hang on to their Jewish heritage as being a Jew, and yet they're a New Testament Christian. And I get that. I mean, I understand from a physical human standpoint that that's what you'd want to do. You'd want to let maybe other Jews know that you were Jewish, but now you're a Christian. I, I understand that. But uh, that all, that all mess all comes because of the fact that um, the scholars and the teachers actually teach and believe that uh, Hebrews um, was written to uh, Hebrew Christians. And of course, that's just simply, that's just simply not true. Uh, it's just simply not true. And there are no such things as, as Jewish Christians or Hebrew Christians. That is a man-made concept that probably, or not one little man-made concept, destroys so much of the Bible. Now, take your Bibles with me, if you would, and come over here. I want to give you three verses that you want to get down. Come over to Galatians first. Look at verse 26. Now, you want to mark these verses, and you need to put them up by whenever you put your notes in the book of Hebrews. You want to address up by the titles where I have mine, the epistle to the Hebrews, and then you want to put a little note, something referenced, not Hebrew Christians or Jewish Christians, and then you want to put these three verses. And 326 uh, says, for, you all, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many uh, of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now that baptism there is not water baptism. That's the baptisms of Romans chapter 6 and Ephesians, the spiritual baptism that puts you into the body of Christ. Now look what he says. Because of verse 26 and 27, there is neither Jew nor Greek, Greek representing the Gentiles, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond or free, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now that verse clearly tells you that once you become a Christian, you're no longer a Jew, nor you're no longer a Gentile. You're now a new creature in Christ Jesus, and the name that was ascribed to us back in Acts was the word Christian. And the word Christian means little Christ or Christ-like. So that verse clearly shows you that there can be no such thing as a Jewish Christian or a Hebrew Christian because once you're in the body, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Now another one is over here in Colossians 3, and these all basically say the same thing, but I want you to have them. Uh, verse, uh, verse 9, 3-9. 
Let not one another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Now that's being born again right there. Now watch. Because of that. And have put on the new man and renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither, in, this, in verse 20, in verse 10, the new creature putting on the body, where there is neither Greek, there's the Gentiles, nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. There again, clearly showing you that once you become a Christian, you're neither a Jew nor a Gentile anymore. And the idea that these were Jewish Christians is totally the most non-biblical and probably one of the most misleading uh, things that the, uh, the, 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 the uh, guys put out. Now, another one is 1 Corinthians 12. Now, this is a little different, but it definitely proves the point. Now, he's talking about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In fact, this is where we get into 12, 13, and 14, three chapters that actually really deal with it. And it says in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Watch it very carefully, verse 2. He's talking to Christians. Based on Galatians 3, what I gave you in Colossians 3, look how the verse supports these things. I'll read again. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, save people, I would not have you ignorant. Ye know that ye were Gentiles. See that thing? They're not Gentiles anymore. That ye were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. And of course, that's a great verse that shows you that when you become a Christian, you're no longer a Gentile. Paul addressed them right there on the spot and said, ye were Gentiles. You're no longer a Gentiles. And uh, if you miss that, which they all do, then uh, you're done as far as not only uh, the book of Hebrews, but most certainly uh, understanding how Christianity works and everything that goes along with it. And you'll certainly never get the word of God down. You know, um, when you get into all of these books, um, Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews, you're going to find that you're going to come across verses that are impossible to put into the church age. But everybody tries to clip off the ends, shore them up a little bit, and slip them in. That's where you get heresy. And the answer to those those verses is to understand, and we're going to see a bunch of them in Hebrews. Hebrews has got more of them than anybody. Man, Matthew too, but Hebrews probably trumps Matthew. Uh, You're going to find that uh, many verses that are impossible to put into the church age uh, become reconcilable and understandable when you look at the book of who it's directly written to, Hebrews. And I would say, this is my own thought, This is me. I would say, right now, the Jews reject Christ. The Jews reject the New Testament. They follow the Old Testament, but they've so screwed that up, 
with all the stuff they've done that they can't get anything out of that. I would say in the tribulation, after the rapture of the church, when the Jew begins to run from the Antichrist, I would say that someplace along the line they're going to they're not going to be able to figure out what's really happening. And I know that Moses and Elijah show up, but along with that, I would probably think that there'll be we'd all be gone, but there'll be a lot of New Testament, a lot of Bibles laying around. Especially if they came around where our church was. You know, there'd be a lot of Bibles laying around. And I would think that the Jews would probably say to themselves, What are we going to do? I mean, we obviously rejected Christ, and now here we are, and somebody will find a New Testament and said, you ain't going to believe this. Remember that New Testament that we rejected because we didn't believe in Christ? There's a book in here that's written to us, Hebrews. And somebody else that says, yeah, I found another Bible over here, you ain't going to believe this, but there's also a book in there that's written to, to the 12 tribes that are scattered, and brother, that is us. Somebody else is going to say, yeah, and I found one over here. You're not going to believe this. There's two books in here written by Peter, who we know was the, uh, uh, had the keys to the kingdom. He preached to us all through the book of Acts. And if they follow this, those books, they'll be able to get an understanding of how, what God is doing. And because Hebrews is filled with the tribulation, uh, as James is. You get into James, man. You got the former latter rain. You got you got Elijah's ministry. You got everything. So I'm saying, there's a probably a good chance that God put those in there not only for us to understand what's going on, but I don't think God would have missed an opportunity to have it there that in the trib, when they can't find anything, that they find the New Testament that actually has a number of books that are written to them, and from that they're going to be able to find you know, where they're at and what they need to do. And then, of course, Moses and Elijah will be there to guide them through it. And, and, and that's, that's just my own thing. I've thought about that for many, many, many years. And, um, you know, it's a thing where it, it take it for what it's worth. But in my mind, I've always seen it, that that's a great possibility. Now, as I said, the book will have one key word. And that one key word will be better. And you're going to see it as we start to come through here that uh, this, is, this is what he does. And uh, you're going to find that the whole book breaks down comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament and clearly showing the Jew or the Hebrews that the New Testament is better. And when you start to get into this, Wow, there's a lot of tangled things that we're going to untangle that is going to make a lot of things clearer for you. And, um, you know, the outline will be the key to the book. And we will break the outline down as we kind of go through it. And uh, I'll, I'll do it, you know, as we go through section by section. And that way you don't have to try to get it all at one time. But if you're in your notes, you want to you want to put everything that's in um, the section one, uh, whatever chapters that may be, and then you want to have another section for the second aspect of it. It'll be a different subject that's better, and we'll just follow that through all the way through, and uh, and we'll go from there. So uh, let's begin here in chapter one. Now that I any questions about that so far that I I've said anything? 
Okay. Well, it's nice to know that I'm making sense. Okay. Let's start at Hebrews chapter 1 here. And uh, the book of Hebrews is going to have 13 chapters in it. It's going to have um, 6,913 words, and it's going to have... uh, um, 303 verses. Can't read my own writing here. And uh, it's, uh, like I said, it's probably the earliest book that's written in the Bible. I'd say it's probably written around uh, Acts chapter uh, 10 or 11, someplace in there, certainly before Paul probably gets back from uh, his um, missing in action and shows up at Antioch. So it starts out by saying this, God well, first of all, chapter 1 and chapter 2 are going to deal with the aspect that Christ is better than the angels. And this is the first association that he, he deals with. And again, he, still, he goes right and starts with Christ. Now, as we come down through here, I'm going to point out a lot of things where a lot of the heresy comes from and, uh, and show you how it, it, it gets into it from there. It says, God who at sundry times, sundry is, uh, is, is different. Um, divers is also different or, multi, uh, you know, multied. Uh, manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, that'll be the Old Testament. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he uh, made the worlds. Now, Here's your first little glitch that most guys, when they read this, they, they take the last days and they try to make that um, the last days that we are living in. And we try to make it, you know, that we're living in the last days, which t- fundamentally is true, but that's not the context here. The last days here, keeping in mind that he's writing to the book of Hebrews, to Hebrews, the last days here will be the last days of the tribulation period. Remember, he says, except those days be shortened. Over there in Matthew 25 and 24. Uh, these last days here within the context will be uh, the tribulation period and the Hebrews uh, in the last days. And if you look at it, taking it into context, it jumps right over the church age. Verse 1 says that he did it by the prophets. Then it jumps into right into the tribulation in verse 2 of the last days of the tribulation. There's no real mention of the church aid at all. So you see, that's, those are the kind of things you want to look at. Every book of the Bible is important that you do this, but I can't underscore it enough with the book of Hebrews that you have to run everything back to that context of who it's written to. If you don't, then you're going to be dangerously on thin ice trying to make this something uh, into the church age that is going to trip you up. Now, having said that, you could make an inspirational application based on the Bible that the last days here, if you're going to make an inspirational application to it, wouldn't be the days that we're living in right now, but would be fundamentally Remember now, one day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And it got kind of a double application because in the Old Testament, verse 1, he did speak to the prophets, but in the last days, that would be the last 2,000 years, 
which we know as the church age. Each, each one of those thousand year periods is likened to a day in the Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 and over there in, in, in Peter. So it, it could be in an inspirational application that in the Old Testament, God did it through the prophets, but in the New Testament, the church age, the last days, those last 2,000 years before the Lord comes back, and that's how long the church age lasts, 2,000 years, each 1,000-year period a day, uh, then, you know, he is doing things by his son. So you want to look at that as a secondary application, not as the primary application. The primary application will be in the context to the Hebrews, you know, them going through the tribulation period, the last days of it, which would be the last part of the last three and a half years. Now, um, the other thing I want you to see, and this is a great key, and boy, this is, this is glossed over, uh, is the last part of verse 3, where he says, uh, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And I want you to notice that it's plural there. Uh, he's not just talking about our world, the earth, other worlds that he created. And uh, that is one of the most silent little powerful things that you're ever going to, uh, you're going to find. And uh, if you notice over here, quickly jumping over to chapter 11 of Hebrews, Look at verse 1, and this is the great chapter on faith here. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for I by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. So there again, only two places in the Bible where the world is not singular, it's plural. And uh, it's a reference to, obviously, that God, as we've talked about many, many times, that when God created it all, uh, he created other worlds out there that are going to be part of his plan that we saw last time we were together that transpires and unfolds in eternity, which we now know is, uh, you know, is the earth is quarantined, so to speak, uh, at the end of, at the bottom of the second heaven, and everything then is uh, relative to that is, uh, you know, up there someplace, and they're just now finding it and, and, and realizing how big it is and finding all these other worlds, which they call them exoplanets, but uh, they're out there. And so it's one of those things where that is one of the greatest little silent words, phrases in the Bible that speak so loudly when you start to really dig into it. Then in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, there's a couple of key things in here that will unlock things for you. The first thing we see is the word brightness. So anytime you're going to find the word brightness in the Bible, you want to be careful and look at it because it's probably a reference to something around the second coming of Christ. The second thing is... Uh, is the express image of his person. Now that is the that is the great biblical concept that on the image of God. The image of God is Jesus Christ. Adam had that image 
and he lost that image. That image got restored by Christ's death on the cross, and when you got saved, you got the image that Adam lost, and that image is Jesus Christ. We know that God is a spirit, can't see God, but Jesus Christ is the visible appearance of the invisible God. Let me say it a different way. Jesus Christ is the visible image of an invisible God. And so when God wanted to manifest himself to man, he did it through an image, and that image is the image of himself, which is Christ Jesus. And when you got saved, you got that living inside you right now. And that's why the Bible says, now are we the sons of God. You got the image, but it doth not appear what we be, because you don't have the likeness yet. But we know when we shall see him, we shall be, like, be him like he is. At one point, right now you got the image, but you don't have the likeness. The likeness is the body. There's coming a time when you're going to have not only the image, but you're also going to have the likeness to his body. And again, this is so foreign, so foreign to people who just cannot wrap their head around the fact that someday that we as the church are going to be God. We're going to be Jesus Christ. Uh, We just can't divorce ourselves from the world that we live in, that we have men and women and we have uh, personalities and we all have. You see, we need that right now because of our limited brain capacity. If you all looked alike, I, I, would, I would have a terrible time. Uh, you don't look all alike and I have a terrible time knowing who you are, remembering who you are. But, but if you were all looked alike, it would be impossible. And this is how people think, you know. They think, well, if we're all going to look like Christ, you know, uh, boy, how many times, how are we going to, how are we going to know everybody? How are we going to, you see, this is the deal. This is where they, they're so shallow in the Bible, they just can't, they just can't get it. When you, right now, it's in our human state, it's mandatory that, that you all look different and all have names so I can associate who's who. Because in my limited pea brain mind, you know, I, that's how we operate. But remember now that when you get, when you get, when you become Christ, you're going to have God's mind. You're going to be God. You're going to be Christ. Yeah, I mean, if you look up there, you did see up there where he says uh, that Christ in verse two is the appointed heir of all things. That's you. That's you. And uh, so it comes to the point where in that day, you know, the physical's gone. I don't need to have faces and names to know who people are. I'm going to know everything just as God knows it. I mean, there could be 100 million people, 30 million light years away, all speaking in a different language, praying, and I'll be able to hear every one of them distinctly know who's saying what. That's the mind of God you're going to have. Now, I get it. That's hard for most God's people to grasp, but my only answer to that is you should have spent more time in your Bible. I mean, uh, that is, uh, you know, I hate keep saying this, but it's true. In my day, when I was growing up back in the 70s, this was Bible 101. I mean, uh, everybody knew this. And it's a thing where, you know, this is how far we've come. And so we, we know now that the image of God is Christ. And when you got saved, you have that image. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So... 
And it's a thing where then the last part of the verse says that he's seated now, which we all know, at the right hand of the majesty. Now, here's where he just described Christ in a very biblical, theological, doctrinal way here. Now, look what he says in verse 4. After what he said, he's the image of God. He's on the right hand of God the Father. He's created all things, all things for, for him. He's going to be the heir with God. Then he starts to do the contrast. Being made so much, and here's the first time. I'd mark all these in your Bible. Being made so much better. I'd mark all the words better in this book. Being so much better than the angels and obtain inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. So now he's beginning to compare Christ to the angels showing you or showing the Hebrews. Remember now, the Old Testament Jews, the Bible says in Acts chapter 7 that the law was given to them by the disposition of angels. And you find angels interacting with them all the way through the Old Testament. So they are familiar with that. And now he's showing them in the New Testament that Christ is better than the angels. For, which, uh, for under which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And uh, now this brings up the next thing that you need to get marked in here. And that is the word begotten you're going to find that all the new Bibles make Jesus a begotten God. Now you say, what's wrong with that? The word begotten means, um, in their world, means that Christ had a beginning. So in your Bible, in your King James Bible, it says, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, John 1.18. If you had an NIV, it would, it would say, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, making Christ a begotten God. Now that is, that heresy goes back to um, the early church where the issue was, was Christ eternal, like we believe, or was Christ a begotten God? And the Council of Nicaea and other church councils down through church history uh, supposedly were to put an end to that. But they never did. And you're going to find that in all the, all, the, uh, all the churches that are what we call Protestant churches, uh, they all teach that Jesus Christ was a begotten God. And uh, that means that he was begotten someplace back in the distant past that God created him as a lesser God. And the, the Jehovah Witnesses teach that. The Mormons teach that. Anybody that has an NIV uh, is propagating that heresy. And that heresy was supposed to have been condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, but evidently it was not. The, uh, the Lutheran have a something they call the... Uh, I'm going to say this wrong. The, I'm going to say the Oxford Confession, but that's not what it is. It's something confession. I don't know. But anyway, they always cite it. And you're going to find that a lot of these liberal dead churches, they cite these things and they all refer to Christ as a begotten God. And of course, that, that's heresy. 
that is here as you right out of the pit of hell. But if you have an NIV and you're a new evangelical or you're a Baptist, and in John 1.18 that says that Christ was the begotten God and you keep that Bible, well, what can I tell you? You got the wrong Bible, pal. So, it, and yet they can't read because I want you to go back here in verse five. Now, they teach that back in eternity that God begot, begat Christ as a begotten God somewhere back in eternity past. Now, let me show you how the Bible, if you just stick with the Bible, how the Bible clears up that heresy before you go two more verses. Verse 5. For under the, which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, watch it, this day I have a begotten thee. Well, then if it was a day, it couldn't be back in eternity because there's no days in eternity. So there's a day then that he was begotten. John 1.18 says he's not begotten as a God, but he's begotten as God's son. And, uh, and then look at verse 5. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So his begotting happened on a day. Now let's find out what day that was. Nothing like a Bible to fix your seminary education. Verse 6, and again, one more time for the stupid neo-evangelical clouds. And again, here it comes. Notice how he changes the wording to clarify what he said about the day. Verse 6, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world. Then there's your day. Jesus Christ was never a begotten God. He was God's begotten son. And Jesus Christ was not begotten one day before he's born into this world to Mary and Joseph. And that's what you got by the verse. And of course, um, it's, it, it's just so crystal clear uh, what you have here that, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you have to be, I don't know. I don't even know how you get there. I mean, you have to be so educated out of your intelligence. You have to be so, that's on the, that's on the good side. The bad side is you have to have so many demons in you that you just, they just won't let you see the scriptures. It says, this day have I begotten thee, not eternal. Now, why didn't the guys back there in Council of Nicaea just go to these two verses and, and deal with it? And of course, higher education never goes to the Bible. They always go to higher education. And uh, this day have I begotten thee. And then he defines that in verse 6 when he brought his first begotten into the world. That'll be the birth of Christ. And he was not begotten one second before that. And then he says, and this is where the Bible says that God was manifested in the flesh. That's begotten. That's Jesus Christ at the first coming of Christ, being born. And then he says, verse 7, and of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? And that's a question. Again, we're comparing one to the other and showing you one is better. But under the sun, Jesus Christ. Watch this. Now, this is the greatest. This, is, this, is, this verse is taken out of all the new Bibles, or it's altered to the place that you can't get it. This is the clearest verse anywhere in the Bible. 
that tells you that Jesus Christ is God. But under the sun, he saith, Thy throne, O God. There it is. That is the absolute clearest verse anywhere in the Bible. And that verse is chained in all the new Bibles out there. That verse gave Jehovah Witnesses such a tough time uh, when you started to deal with them that they had to write their own translation and take it out. Now, I don't mean to beat a dead horse or pick gnats out of your hair, but let me ask you a question. In verse 2, it says uh, that, in verse 3, that Christ is the express image of God's person. And you have that image inside you that makes you Christ. So if you have the image of Christ that makes you Christ, and now you find out in verse 8 that Christ is God, there you are. You're God. It just doesn't appear yet because you're still stuck in this encasement of flesh. But the image you got in you is Christ, and that's God. And someday you're going to get the very image, a very likeness that Christ had, the likeness of God, an image now, and uh, you're going to be God in the full sense of the word. Because if Romans chapter 8 says, if you look up here again, it says, uh, verse 2, uh, about Christ, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Well, Romans chapter 8 says you and I are going to be a joint heir with him. So if you're going to be a joint heir, how in the world are you going to be a joint heir with Christ if you're not Christ? And if Christ is God, how are you going to be a joint heir if you ain't Christ and God too? You see how fundamentally stupid the position becomes with people because they don't get into the Bible? And somebody says, well, you know, I, that, that troubles me. Well, sure it would trouble you. I mean, you never want anybody to Christ. You don't go to church. You don't do anything for God. You sit around and do absolutely nothing. You don't care about anything with God. You don't do anything for the Lord. Why would you, why could you grasp something this deep? I mean, you're still working on the four spiritual laws. Are you kidding me? And it's a thing where this is where you get into the Bible. But verse 8, you mark it in your Bible there, is the greatest, greatest verse in the Bible that says that Christ is God. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Verse 9. Thou hast loved righteousness and hath hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil and the gladness above thy fellows. And of course, the oil there would be the Holy Spirit of God. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens uh, are the works thereof, uh, works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as a garment, and as a vesture thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed, and thou art the same, and thy years uh, shall not fail. Now what I just read to you seems like nothing. I get it. It seems like just a poetic style of saying everything uh, in a nice way. What you have here, if you take the time to lay it out and you believe that every word in the Bible is there for a reason, what you have right here is one of the greatest 
opening keys to the universe, the second heaven, and everything that God is. Now, the, the key I want you to look at are two things. Verse 11, a garment. And then verse 12, a vesture. And God changing that vesture, folding it up. Now, come on back to John chapter 19. I want to show you something. Verse 23, Christ is being crucified on the cross. Verse 23, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart. Now, they basically do what soldiers always do. Uh, in World War II, World War I, Vietnam, I mean, uh, when you shot an enemy and there was a lot of them laying around, the first thing you did was go through their pockets to find out what they had. You know, money, whatever, pictures, whatever. That's an old trait of soldiers. They take the spoil of the people that they kill or capture, and they, you know, and here, uh, when they get his, uh, uh, they took his garments, the one garment, they, they, it was probably, you know, they're soldiers, they don't have a lot of money, uh, and Cloth was obviously worth something, so there's four of them, so they just pick out their bayonet and cut it up into four equal pieces, and here Joe, here Ralph, here Tom, here, here Mike, and everybody gets a piece of it. But, and also his coat. Now, here it comes. Now, why is this important? Who cares? I mean, I get it. Cut it in four parts. I get it. North, south, east, and west. I, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. But now the coat was without seam, woven from top throughout. Now, what on God's green earth has that got to do with anything? Why do I need to know that? Is that going to be the verse I quote to myself in the morning when I get up? I mean, when you call me on the phone and you have a tough time in life, am I going to say, okay, here's the verse for you. Now the coat was without seam, woven from top to throughout. Thank Brother Bob. That's what I needed. Is that going to help you any? You ever ask yourself why things like that are put in your Bible? Now, I know what the answer, standard answer is from you neo-evangelical demon-possessed guys out there. You, uh, you, uh, you, you think that it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, just part of the story. And uh, I guess, what, God just put that in as filler? See, to me, everything in the Bible is for a reason. Now, why is it that he makes a distinction between his two parts of his clothes? The one they, they, they rip up into four parts. The other it has no seam. And the Bible takes the time to tell you even the way it was designed. And the way it's designed is the fact that it's got a, it's like a poncho. It's got a hole in the top for his head. And then it's a one piece that drips down over his body like a cape that completely... And if, if you were standing there watching somebody wear it, 
their, their head would be out the top, but the garment then would come down and drape down over their bodies, kind of like in the shape of a, a pyramid coming from the head over the shoulders and then down through that. And, and what you have there, and in Hebrews, Hebrews is talking about that God is going to fold up the second heaven like somebody folds up a vesture and a garment and puts it away. And in John chapter 19, you have the takes the time to tell you that they parted the one in four pieces, but the one that was without seam that was shaped just like our second heaven. I mean, come on. Job chapter 26 verse 7 says at the top of the second heaven, there's a hole. And you know who sits at the top of that? The head of God, or head of Christ, God. So there's the head. Then the Bible tells us, you know, then the Bible tells us that, you know, in, in Isaiah chapter four, uh, 40, verse 32, that the heaven is thy throne, the earth is thy footstool. So if we have a second heaven, like this garment that has a hole in the top with the head of God at the top, and then God fills the expanse of that, and now you're told that his feet are at the bottom, now you understand what this garment's a picture of. This garment's a picture of the second heaven. The head of Christ, God, is at the top, his feet are at the bottom, and this second heaven is like a garment filled with the presence of God. And what you have here, going back to Hebrews chapter 11, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 11, it says in verse 10, And thou, Lord, in the beginning... Oh, there's the beginning, Genesis 1.1. Now we're getting the context. In the beginning, has laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens, all three of them, are the works of thy hands. Now, he just told you the context, went to back from the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and then that they are likened to the heavens are the works of thy hands. And then in verse 11, he says, they shall perish the heavens, but thou remainest, they shall all shall wax old as a garment. There it is. Now he's telling you that the three heavens and everything that God did is likened to a garment. John 19, we saw that garment. Christ's head at the top, feet at the bottom, garment through the second heaven, and we're saying down here that he's going to fold them up and there's going to come out of that a new heavens and a new earth. And that'll be the earth and the heavens renovated by fire that we've talked about last time or a couple of times ago. And uh, he's going to change, verse 12, uh, he's going to change the heavens. Because the new heavens and the new earth are going to come forth. But thou art the same and thy years shall not fail. God stays the same. He's showing you there that everything that God created, he created around his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I would say that Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says of the uh, invisible things from the creation are clearly seen and understood by the things that God made. We talk a lot about patterns. Christ was the pattern by which God made everything. That's why everything comes down in a pattern of threes. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Everything that God did, he made after a pattern of his Son, who was the perfect pattern. 
Therefore, when he wanted to create a perfect world, he followed that pattern. And when that pattern got damaged in Genesis chapter 3, by the first Adam, the second Adam took it upon himself that came down, restore that fallen image, make the pattern perfect again, and then set it up that when eternity comes, that we get out there past everything that God is doing now, like we talked about last time, that everything is perfect because now it's back on task with a pattern, except now there's no more sin, uh, there's no more devil, nobody's going to screw up anymore, and now God's original plan is followed through the perfect pattern. Right, and there'll be what? 200, 300, billion, trillion? Perfect patterns throughout God's second heaven. Every man and woman that's been born again from the church age right on up to the rapture of the church. We become those perfect patterns. Uh, it's, it's one of the most incredible things that you're ever, 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 ever going to find uh, anywhere. And, uh, you know, the book of Hebrews, um, when he starts to get into these comparisons, you, you, you would know, you just couldn't help but know that you're going to get into some really deep, good stuff that is going to really carry a lot of things through. And you're going to see a lot of stuff. I mean, look what we have defined. We're not even done with the chapter yet. Look what we have defined uh, we've defined everything here from, the, from him, his eternalness uh, to his, the image to, you know, him being begotten. And, uh, you know, and somebody asked me, why, why, why is he called the first begotten? And uh, because you and me, when you got saved, we are begotten. We're begotten in the image. But he's called the first of begotten because he's the first man that was begotten of God. And then you and I are in the series after his pattern that you and I are begotten. But he's the first begotten. He's the first man that was begotten of God in God's image. And we all are in that pattern. And that's why we are only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You become a begotten son based on his begottenness, but he's the first begotten. And so verse 11 and 12 are two great verses. It shows you the structure, shape of the second heaven. People like to call it the universe. The universe is, very, is really an unstable term for that because it's more, the biblical term would be the second heaven or the firmament. And now we know uh, that it's shaped like, you know, a pyramid. This is why you know, as I've said before, when you get into Baal worship and you get into all the other nations, it's one of the most amazing things that back in the ancient, ancient times of the Incas and the Aztecs and the, everybody, they had no communication among each other. They probably didn't even know the other people existed. Their world was just whatever their little tribal area was, but they all did pyramids. The Egyptians did it. The Aztecs did it. The, uh, down in South America, they did it. All those ancient tribes, um, the, uh, they all built pyramids. Uh, the, you, you see them in Mexico. Uh, you even see them in the United States. Uh, you go to different states and they have those mounds that are all covered up now. And they don't know what they were, but they're ancient civilization mounds. They're all forms of pyramids. Yeah, the Egyptians did it. Everybody did it. Because the pyramid, going back through the Bible represented something to those people with the second heaven and the sons of God. 
And uh, I, I, I can't prove this. I, I just simply can't. And, but there's some things that, you know, you don't really have to prove. If somebody would ask me what the Tower of Babel was shaped like, based on everything that you find, I'd say it was probably a pyramid. And uh, it's one of those things where, um, you know, you have in Egypt, you have the, the, the pyramids, that were thing. You have the Great Pyramid of Colophius, which nobody even knows who built that. I've heard guys say that it was pre-flood. Maybe it is. But whoever did it, build it, understood a lot about the Bible, and uh, it's a thing where it stands today as one of the last seven wonders of the world that still exists, and it's, it's unimaginable. And everything in it lines up to the Bible in some way, shape, or form. And uh, it, is, it, it, it seems like it's God's testimony on this earth of God's eternalness, the second heaven, and everything that God is going to do. I've told you before that it never had a capstone, leading a lot of people to think that it was never finished. You know, it was finished, and the capstone is not on there for a reason, because if it's a type of the second heaven, God's garment, then the new heaven is going to be a double pyramid that's going to come down and fill the top of that second heaven and be the capstone will be New Jerusalem. It's incredible stuff. Incredible stuff. And then he goes on in verse uh, 13. Uh, after 11 and 12, he talks about that he's going to change the second heaven and he likens it now to a garment and a vesture. And then you run it back to John 19 and there you are. Uh, then he says, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies my, uh, thine footstool. And of course, uh, uh, you're going to find that that's an Old Testament reference. And again, the reference to the second coming of Christ. It's not in any way, shape, or form to the church. Now, you would think that somebody reading Hebrews chapter 1 would be, begin to ask themselves, this doesn't look like it fits into the church. That reference there, uh, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool, is an Old Testament reference uh, that uh, is quoted in Acts chapter 7. And when you just go back and look at it in Acts chapter 7, and so, so you, you don't miss that. Uh, let me go. That's not where I want to go. Let's go back to Isaiah 66, 1. I think that's...
Yeah. 66.1. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven, is my, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye built unto me and where is the place of my rest? Now that has nothing to do with a Christian. Not a thing to do with a Christian. That has to do with the nation of Israel and God getting a house built to him in the millennium where is his place of rest. And look at the context of this. 66, 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, so shall your seed and your name be remained. It's the nation of Israel. So the first thing I would find when I'm coming through there that he keeps talking about this and uh, it has to do with the nation of Israel. Never has to do with the church. It always deals with the second coming. Now, if that was not enough, if that was not enough, he says in verse 13, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand and took my enemies thy footstool. And again, we're talking about Christ being better than the angels. If that wasn't enough that it drew my attention that this isn't about the church. Look at verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits, the angels, sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? Now, how can that be the church? You're already the heirs of salvation. But there's somebody that's not the heirs of salvation yet that shall be. That's the nation of Israel. Now, how in the world could you miss that? How in the world could you put that into the church? How could you get a verse up there in comparing Christ and the angels? And Acts chapter 7, and that was the verse where I was going to take you, Acts chapter 7, verse uh, um, 53, says that the law was given to Israel by the disposition of angels. And that was the reference I had there, verse 14, for they're all ministering spirits. And there again, He tells you, he gives you a verse that deals with Israel at the second coming, footstool. And then he tells you that the angels are for ministering spirits. Acts chapter 7 tells you that that's to the nation of Israel. And then he says that they were sent forth to minister for them, Old Testament Israel, who shall be the heirs. They haven't got their kingdom yet. You have. You were born into it, kingdom of God. They won't get theirs till... God makes Christ's enemies his footstool, second coming of Christ. So you begin to see how this is absolutely, uh, I don't know how somebody would, would just, unless you're just put on snowshoes and just trample through the pages of this book and just override the verses that are so absolutely clearly from the very title, understanding that in Christ Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. And it's a thing where once you see that and understand that, then you begin to see how that everything in here in its direct context will be to the nation of Israel. And Paul most likely wrote this book early on. Once he he understood the body mystery, it probably compelled him to write the book of Hebrews to show the Jews the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament 
that they could clearly see the difference. And in doing so, get them up to chapter 11 and 12, 10, 8, 9, and 10, 11, that shows you that there's also a better sacrifice. And that sacrifice was Christ dying on the cross. It, it's, it's so clear. And I think there's no question that the last chapter of every book that Paul writes is his signature. There's a style to it. Every book that he writes, there's a style to it. And I think that when he wrote the book of Hebrews, probably early on, he wasn't writing to the church directly. He was writing to the Hebrews because we all know that the nation of Israel was his burden. And God told us that he was going to, he was going to bear Christ's name to three people groups, the Gentiles, the kings, the children of Israel. And probably he wrote this directly showing the nation of Israel, his people, how that the New Testament that now that God has revealed to him, the church age, is so much better than what they had in the Old Testament to try to show them Christ. And then the last chapter he puts his signature on it. And now he clearly know that he wrote it. And the question that everybody's mind is, why did he write it the way that he did? And the only plausible explanation is the one that I just gave you. Once you investigate a little bit and find out that he, you know, he, he had some things that he wanted to, uh, you know, that he wanted to accomplish and he wanted to do. So, you know, this is why when you get into the book of Hebrews, we, as everything we do in the Bible, we will always simply follow the Bible. Scholarship means nothing to us, less than nothing to us. Uh, higher education means even less than scholarship does. It doesn't matter what a pastor was taught and trained wherever he went to school and what the great minds taught him. We have one greater that teaches us, and that's the Holy Spirit of God. And that's the one we stay with. We just do what Paul says we're supposed to do. We take the things that Paul started to teach, book of Hebrews, which we have heard of many witnesses, Paul said, and then we commit those to faithful men. What I'm giving you here has a pattern and a track record going down through the history of the church of men teaching it. It's only been in the last 40, 50, 40 years maybe that all this in central mainline Christianity has fallen apart. And the Baptists are gone now, and the neo-evangelical crowd is on, and with that, the Bible's gone, Holy Spirit's gone, and now it's all a big mess, and uh, there's no truth anywhere. We are definitely in the book of Judges where there's no king in Israel and every man doing what's right in his own eyes. So, Well, we'll hold up there. With